Hi, Marie. I'm Detective Parker. This is Detective Pruitt. We're in charge of the investigation. Um, I know this is hard, but I need to ask you some questions about what happened. I already told him. Officer Curran. Well, that, that's good. Curran's a good cop, but I'm lead detective on this, so I need to hear what happened directly from you, okay? with Monsters, Rebel Scum, and Vigilantes. I am your host, Brett Ashley. A couple of housekeeping items to get out of the way. We have our first show correction, and it's a few weeks old. I apologize. It's taken me so long to get around to it. From Dustin Fisher, who is a friend of mine, and Dustin spotted in our episode Golden Globes So White, which was episode six. So somehow I mangled Keegan-Michael Key's name, and I think I said Michael Keegan Key or something, and as a longtime fan of Key and Peele and virtually every other thing that Keegan-Michael Key has ever done, I don't know what happened. I think because I was recording that episode so late at night, it just sort of reversed itself in my head, but that is shameful. Shame! 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 And I'm sorry to Keegan-Michael Key. And thank you, Dustin, for pointing out my error. And that's a completed pass to a very wide open Hamel McCringleberry, the rookie out of Penn State. Nice grab by McCringleberry. You think he's happy? Oh, boy, he's loving it down there. Oh, look at that. Boy, that is something. And oh, oh, wait, we got a flag there. Is that for excessive celebration? Today's episode, we will be covering the Netflix series Unbelievable, and we will also be spending a little bit of time discussing the death of NBA legend Kobe Bryant and his daughter, amongst seven other victims in a helicopter crash this weekend. Out of respect to any and all listeners who are survivors of sexual assault or rape or sexual abuse or harassment of any kind, I will be using a trigger warning. So some of you may be wondering where the show Unbelievable and the topic of rape comes in to high tea with monsters, rebel scum, and vigilantes, and I would argue that rapists and those who commit sexual offenses are amongst the worst monsters that walk the earth. So now I'm going to insert our first trigger warning. This is for the show Unbelievable. If you have seen the show and you are a survivor of rape or sexual assault of any kind, then you will probably be comfortable with the discussion as I do not describe the assaults. I will not be referencing any specifics concerning the attacks, but rather how the investigations were handled and the strength of the acting and the performances in the show, um, as well as the narrative around always believing the victim, always believing the survivor. So if you are comfortable with that content, then you 
will be comfortable with listening on for the rest of the episode. And if you are not, you may want to skip this episode for your own well-being. I know I was late to discover Unbelievable on Netflix after it had been released last fall, just uh, something that had been in my queue of shows to watch and I had not gotten to it just yet. And I was floored. A very good friend of mine put it well when she said that she loved this show, but it felt weird saying that because it is a show about rape, a show about being victimized and then being further victimized and traumatized by not being believed, largely by male detectives and male police officers for Marie, the central character of the show. The actress who plays Marie is Caitlin Dever, and being put into her shoes for many victims is triggering because because we live in a society where this hashtag Me Too movement is new, but being assaulted, being sexually harassed, being victimized, being raped is not new. And there are very few women I know who don't have a Me Too moment in their past, or one that at the time they made themselves be okay with, even though they knew it was wrong in their gut. Many victims don't talk about being victimized, especially if it happened when they were younger or if it happened at the hands of somebody that they trusted. For me, fortunately, things did not go as far as they might have, but both times I got pushed to the point of discomfort. It was with two separate friends, people who I thought cared for me and who took advantage of me in those situations in a way that I was not comfortable with and in fact stated that I was not comfortable with. Um, So all of that is to say that this is a tough topic and it's sort of strange to say I love this show, but I really do love this show and what it does and how it transforms us from the perspective of might-be-doubters when Marie's character is slowly picked apart over the course of episode one and then as we know and, and come to really trust in our gut the way that these detectives do, played by Tony Collette and by Merritt Weaver who are formidable and fearless and portrayed masterfully by the actresses especially Merritt Weaver but coming to believe Marie when everyone around her has written her off when she's really been first victimized by the rape traumatized and then further victimized and traumatized by doing everything that a rape victim is supposed to do reporting it providing all of the information she can to the detectives who are investigating her rape and then being thrust into this situation where they literally tell her they're digging into what sort of person she is and almost forcing her to retract her accusation and writing her off completely as a troublemaker. Okay, I'm going to cut to the chase. I found some inconsistencies in your statements and those of other witnesses. I don't know anything about that. How about you walk me through it again? Tell me exactly how the assault happened. Again? I'd like to back up a little and talk about what came before all this. DCFS shared your file with us. Why? We wanted to get a clear picture of who you are beyond this assault. 
uh, as a person. You've been through a lot. You're a real survivor, aren't you? I know dad, unreliable mom with not-so-nice boyfriends, then foster care, which wasn't always much better, I'm sure. Sometimes, sometimes it was, it was good. My point is, you've made it through some very difficult stuff. I don't really like to think about that. I just try to be as happy as I can be and as happy as possible, so. Sure, I get that. So help us out. There are inconsistencies in your story. I don't... It's, it's confusing. For us, too. And we're not the only ones. What do you mean? There are other people who don't know that what you told us about the rape, that it's the truth. To the point where her foster moms and her counselors and everybody around her ceases to believe her. What sort of person you are when you're a rape victim or a victim of sexual assault or sexual violence doesn't matter, right? We should be focusing on the perpetrator or the assailant. I think the reassuring part of this series is that we know from the moment we meet their characters that Detective Grace Rasmussen, who is Tony Collette's character, and Detective Karen Duvall, um, who is Merritt Weaver's character, are not going to let this go. They're not going to let anything stop them. They're willing to go to any length. They're going to see this through until they have their rapist behind bars. Why don't you tell me where you were on the night of April 22nd? I was at a conference in Albuquerque. Anyone who can confirm that? Only the 300 or so attendees, plus the organizers, plus the video that was uploaded of the lecture I gave. Can I go now? Are we done? Do you have a wife, Mr. Graham? Or girlfriend or sisters? Or... I have three sisters. Do me a favor. Take a second to imagine how you'd feel if one of those sisters was tied up and raped at gunpoint. Think about the commitment you would expect from the detectives working the case. Now think about the witnesses they brought in for questioning. How you would hope that they would do anything they could to assist in the apprehension of the monster who could inflict such irreversible harm on your sister. Thank you for your extremely valuable time. It is very satisfying for a woman to see a female-led cast. They're very much in leadership roles in their lives. Detective Duvall, Merritt Weaver's character, is even within her own family. She has two daughters with her husband, who is also a police officer, and he works the night shift and she works the day shift. And even in their relationship, you can see that she sort of holds the upper hand. Um, she's given the, the license to work a case that she's passionate about for as long as she needs to. There's an intense scene where she is with her own staff going over the details of the case for her first rape victim by this serial rapist. She's taking one of her team members to task. Did we get the surveillance footage from the businesses near Amber's apartment yet? Yeah, I sent you the links. How about the lab reports? Not back yet. Why not? I don't know. Just... Just what? How long does it take to process a rape kit? That's not a rhetorical question. Uh, about a day or so if we request a rush. Did we request a rush? Yes. And it's been 49, 50 hours since our victim left the hospital. No one thought to pick up a phone, call the lab, ask where it is. You know the labs are always late. I'm sure the report's on the way. Oh, really? You're sure? Great. Mia. Relax. Everything's right on track. Morris is sure of it. I'm not the enemy, detective. You don't have to yell at me. I sure shouldn't have to. Look around, Morris. What do you see? A whole lot of human beings, all well-intentioned, but wildly capable of error. And 
Fine. Fallibility? I get that. But when we're talking about a violent rapist, a guy who at any minute could break into another woman's house and scar another woman for life, because this is not something people get over, this is something they carry with them forever, like a bullet in the spine. So given that, yeah, I do expect everyone on my team to give me 100% of their effort 100% of the time. Right, got it. And that means triple-checking that the work is done right, the report is thorough, and the lab delivers its results on time. If that seems beyond your capabilities or your field of interest, maybe another team would be a better fit. The labs had a mix-up on their end. They're just sending them over now. Well, there you go. The process by which they begin to understand that they're dealing with a serial rapist is actually based on a true story. A news article published by ProPublica in 2015, and I understand that there is also a This American Life episode called Anatomy of Doubt based on the same story. So I'm looking forward to listening to that basically as soon as I'm done recording this episode. What this series strives to portray is the lack of justice for victims of these kind of crimes. I would have liked to see the show go even further and highlight how race plays a role in sexual crimes. I've read a little bit of this magazine called um, The Body Is Not An Apology, and the website is thebodyisnotanapology.com, and there was an article called You Are Not Alone, Uncovering the Dark Secret of Black Women and Sexual Abuse, and it highlights some statistics that are really troubling. Of course, as, as I said in the beginning, sexual assault is a lot more prevalent than society would have us believe, and I think that's the origin of the Me Too movement. There are estimates that at least 25% of women will be sexually assaulted and that those are considered to be low-end estimates, but among black women especially, crimes are less likely to be reported because there are more deterrents for women of color in deciding whether or not they should come forward. And history has proven out that they are less likely to see justice brought against their attacker. In fact, there was a study that was referenced in the article I read that white men who are guilty of raping black women receive shorter sentences than men found guilty of raping white women. And of course, you can go further and see that men of color who are found guilty of sexual violence against white women have longer sentences than white men. And that's been true for, you know, a century, if not more. So there is a double standard already existing in this hashtag Me Too movement in that it's almost a more white feminism movement because we are not acknowledging in a larger way rapes in involving women of color and even men of color on the victim side, that justice is is already tilted uh, because everything in this country is sort of done through a lens of white supremacy in the justice system, and that's just a fact. Um, so I would have really liked to see the show go further and and discuss that and bring that to light. There was a black woman who was a victim, and I think it's episode three or four of this series that outlines her experience, and she has a detective who is committed to getting justice for her in Tony Collette's portrayal of Detective Rasmussen. So there is some representation, but I feel it should have been much stronger. And then how Detective Duvall handles 
the investigation for her victim, whose name is Amber. She's portrayed by Danielle McDonald, who you might recognize from Dumplin' or from Bird Box. You can sort of hear the difference in a case handled by a woman detective. Amber? Oh, hi. I'm Detective Karen Duvall. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Are you injured physically? Would you like to see a paramedic? No, they took me out already. I'm fine. Let me know if that decision changes. Sometimes pain can sneak up on you. They're right here, and they're here for you. Okay, it's all right with you. I'd like to ask you some questions. Sure. It's a little busy out here. Would you be comfortable talking in my car? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, good. That's me right here. This is a show that you shouldn't miss, whether you're a man or a woman. I think any of us who have been victimized or haven't been victimized can take something from this show. Um, That said, appreciating that this might be triggering and traumatic for those who have been victimized. But without spoiling the show, the outcome at the end is very satisfying for the victims and was just again really impressed by this strong female cast. Diving into the actress Merritt Weaver a little bit more because I had been so familiar with Toni Collette's work but less familiar with Merritt Weaver. I have just started watching Nurse Jackie which she won an Emmy for in 2013 and she is fantastic in that show as well. It's a very different role for her but I'm very much enjoying watching that and interestingly enough if you go back and watch the video of her Emmy speech in 2013, it's only 18 words long. It's hilarious, so you should watch the video of that. And then in 2017, she won for another Netflix show called Godless. You might also recognize her from some supporting roles. She was briefly on The Walking Dead, and then she's in Marriage Story. One thing that is interesting is that she's also always been candid about the fact that she um, was a child who was conceived via sperm donor and raised by a single mother from Texas. She also graduated from LaGuardia High School, which many very fine actors and actresses are alum of Timothy Chalamet. Adrian Brody, Jennifer Aniston, Billy D. Williams, Al Pacino, Sarah Paulson, Ving Rames, Omar Epps, um, Ansel Elgort, Gerald Jerome, so many good actors, actresses, musicians, artists, composers went to LaGuardia. And having grown up um, across the river in New Jersey, I had a couple of friends who actually went there and just was intensely jealous of of their experience. So sort of a neat background for this actress and it's, it's exciting to see her success. So I'm going to touch briefly now on the death of Kobe Bryant in a tragic helicopter crash. This weekend, the crash also killed his daughter Gianna, who was 13. Two of her teammates on a basketball team for a sports academy that Kobe Bryant owned that was focused on developing female athletes were also killed. Alyssa Altobelli and Peyton Chester died as well as John Altobelli, who is the father of Alyssa and his wife Carrie also died in the crash. Peyton Chester, her mother Sarah Chester died in the crash as well as the pilot. The girls basketball coach Christina Mauser was also killed. She was, I believe, a mother of 
three or four children. On its own, this being a tragedy that impacted five families and included the loss of life of three promising young children just doing what children do is tragic. And I think regardless of whether there was a celebrity involved or not, this would have been a tragic episode. This is a complicated issue for many, especially those who are survivors of or advocates against sexual violence. And that is because Kobe Bryant was accused of rape earlier on in his career. And victims have a right to remain anonymous. So I'm not naming the victim, even though multiple media sources have now come out and named her. I want to be very clear. I believe his accuser. I think that his apology, which left room for much more to be said and his settlement with his victim felt more like an ellipsis than a period as far as concerns justice for the victim and some of the language that he used in his exchange with detectives would lead people to believe that this may not have been the only incident of its kind. I'll also say that victims of sexual assault, sexual violence, survivors have a right to be as angry as they want to be. We should all be angry on behalf of victims of sexual violence. The issue at hand is how almost gleeful so many people were on social media within minutes of learning of Kobe Bryant's death. And while the wreckage was still smoldering, while families were still being notified, I saw one woman even commented, oh, this is karma for what he did. And again, I don't I don't have a right to speak on behalf of all women, of victims, of anyone who has survived any sort of sexual assault. My experiences were very low on the spectrum of severity and violence, so I feel not equipped to speak on behalf of anybody in this case. But I do think that it's okay to have complicated and confusing feelings on how Kobe Bryant is remembered. While that's one issue, I think we also need to be sincere in how race plays a role in this because being a black celebrity or a black athlete who commits a crime, whether it's sexual assault or a violent crime, just thinking of Michael Vick uh, and the abuse of dogs and, you know, in many cases, the deaths of dogs in his dog fighting ring. You know, the, the language we use and the sort of lifelong sentence of guilt imposed upon black celebrities and black athletes seems to surpass the expectation of that for white athletes and white celebrities. And I think it's important especially for people who are not victims or survivors who are just caught up in this judge and jury and executioner role of shaming Kobe Bryant before his body is even found is something that people need to reflect on. Everything in this country is sort of processed and run through a lens of white supremacy. A good friend of mine pointed out to me that Michael Vick committed a crime against dogs and was punished more severely than than say a white police officer who accidentally kills a black person. 
person, and I put accidentally in quotes, or a white man who rapes a black woman, or a white man who kills anyone. I think that context is really important. And so for Michael Vick, who was convicted and sentenced and served his time and took a hit to his career and then also donated millions of dollars to raise awareness around dogfighting and the brutality of it and in the hopes of putting an end to it, is still receiving the vitriol of so many people who are silent when when black people, black children, black adults are victimized. And what that says to our fellow Americans who are of color on the importance, the value of their lives. Seeing that Kobe Bryant should be memorialized first with the caveat of this is a man who sexually assaulted somebody and not this is a loving father who died alongside his 13 year old in a terrible tragic way and without knowing the details we can't conceive of how horrible it must have been to be in that accident for the families who have lost children and parents brothers sisters husbands wives it's unbelievably tragic. And now because there are people fanning the flames of rage about matters which may not directly concern them, and again, I'm not speaking about survivors of sexual assault. Their their rage and their feelings, no matter what they are, are their own, and they are entitled to them, and they are entitled to speak on them because we should not force them to feel taboo in voicing their opinions. But I'm seeing a lot of men and women who are not on the spectrum of victims saying sort of, yeah, he's a rapist, let's not forget that, instead of there are nine people, including children, who are dead, one of whom for everything that he took from the victim who he assaulted has spent his life since then trying to make up for it by doing good in his community, doing good for women and for young girls. Um, He was the father of four young girls and virtually everything that you can find about him from that settlement on, he has been a servant of his community. I don't think we can understate how beloved he was by many in the black community. It has to be reconciled, I think, for people who are out there joyfully dragging his name through the mud minutes after his death. Are you doing this from a place of, I was a victim and I feel for his victim what was taken from her and I will be outraged at that forever, in which case that's fine? Or are you doing it from a place where you feel entitled to pile on because you see friends on Facebook are piling on and saying something like, oh, it's his karma, you know, did his karma warrant the deaths of eight other people that were not involved in sexual assault? You know, I I felt disgusted seeing some of that and especially from so many of my fellow white people because some of the same people who are decrying, memorializing Kobe with any fondness are so quick to defend the MSNBC anchor who unfortunately said the N-word when trying 
trying to discuss Kobe Bryant. She said she mixed up the names of the New York Knicks and the Lakers, but that wasn't what it sounded like. It sounded pretty clear. Um, her name is Allison Morris, by the way. And, you know, she's come out and said, what I said was Nakers. And, I mean, that's not what it sounds like. And for so many white people to sort of come to her defense and say, oh, it was a mistake. You know, it could have happened to anyone. She stumbled. She stuttered. A lot of black people who are hearing this, we cannot invalidate what this feels like for black Americans to hear. And yet we have people defending it immediately, reflexively, who are so eager to criticize Kobe Bryant. And so I just think that social media is an especially inflammatory place to be right now. The media bungled their coverage of Kobe's death from the minute it was known with reporting on the incident before families were informed and then speculating and naming which children they suspected were on the helicopter without confirming it and probably traumatizing even further some of the families, particularly Kobe Bryant's wife. Who knows where all of her other daughters were at the moment that this crash happened. So having friends who have lost children and spouses in this past year alone my heart goes out to everybody who lost someone in that crash. And so much more than the tragic death of nine people has been made of the incident. And I feel very strongly that it's a mistake for especially white people, especially people who are not survivors, to feel that the whole world needs to hear their first opinion, their first take, their first tweet on something like this. I realize that that can come across as hypocrisy because I am a white woman and I live with white privilege every day and I'm given the benefit of the doubt that so many of my black friends are not. But for what it's worth, I think that you can be a victim and you can believe a victim and still acknowledge the tragedy of this loss, whether Kobe Bryant was a celebrity or just a, just a regular guy. I think it's important to acknowledge the lens through which we view so much in our country. A long, steeped history of white supremacy is at the root of it, and there are threads of hate running so deeply in this country, so much of it associated with white hatred of black people and people of color. And every single day, we are cutting off something good. And we need to be careful about those double standards. We need to be more aware of the words that we use and the way that we use them. And that goes for all of us, myself included. I think about Colin Kaepernick, who isn't guilty of a crime, who simply knelt in solidarity with his brothers and sisters who are oppressed by our country. And for that, he has been penalized beyond repair for his career. And, and I tried to think how this would be a non-issue if every white member of his team had knelt with him, how he would still be on that team how we have a president who smears him at every single rally, and how, how we allow this sort of thing to continue by putting our money into systems that punish our countrymen and women simply for the color of their skin. 
So this is a slightly heavier episode than our typical fare, and I know it's a lot to process and digest, but I ask that you do take the time to sit with and reflect on this if this is something you've been wrapped up in this week. I want to say thank you to some of the friends who I I haven't named, but who shared their insights for this episode. I would specifically recommend a book called White Fragility to anyone who wants to dive into some of these topics further and certainly suggest that if you were a fan of Unbelievable or if you're planning on watching it that you can also read the original article on ProPublica and listen to the episode on This American Life which is what I'm going to do as soon as I shut off the microphone here so we'll be coming back in a couple of days with a few really big announcements that I'm excited to share with you all and I appreciate so much your listening your ratings on Apple Podcasts, which help us immensely as we try to grow our following on this show. I also want to give a shout out to our two newest patrons on Patreon, Elise Feldman. Thank you so much for pledging at the vigilante level and Sarah Pevner, one of my good friends, for pledging at the rebel scum level. Patreon is an app that allows you to have access to exclusive content, blogs by myself and other contributors to the show, Some exclusive episodes will be posted within the next month, so content only for subscribers. What the support we get from Patreon allows us to do is to maintain the quality of this show, access to sources for content, access to the software and the equipment that we record the show with, and other things that are key to researching and writing and running a show of this quality. So if you are feeling so inclined to provide your support as well, you can do it at the $1 a month level, $2 a month level, $3 or $5 or $10 a month level, and I will give you a shout out on the show. You'll receive free show merchandise and other benefits immediately upon subscribing. Um, We so appreciate that level of support. So thank you again, and until next time, pinkies up.